I know I certainly want to be uh, sensitive to time, but I, I, would, I would also say that's good, right? That, that's, just, that's just good. That's good. So it's like that's the sort of stuff we need to be doing, um, even if it adds a few minutes to our morning. So if you would, uh, join with me in a word of prayer. I'm going to be, again, as we walk through this series on the attributes of God, we'll be looking at a few different themes in, uh, through Scripture, um, following our main theme this morning. But if you want to turn to some place, we'll be starting in Deuteronomy chapter 32, uh, reading a few verses in the beginning of Deuteronomy 32. So if you would, pray with me. Father, I, I thank you so much for our morning so far. I thank you for being able to sing songs to you, to your goodness and your love, your rightness, your thoughtfulness toward us, how big you are and majestic you are. I thank you, Lord, for the testimony of, of men and women who have been loved by you and have seen that love manifested through their lives these past weeks. We thank you, Lord, now as we enter into your word, and I just pray that we enter into it humbly. I pray for myself that I enter into it with all humility and reverence, that we hear, Lord God, who you are, not with a distorted lens, but with a clear one, and that we again appreciate the magnitude of the God that we serve, and in, that, in view of that, we are awestruck that this is also the God who loves us and cares for us and calls us his own. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So what is God really like? It's the question we've been asking. This morning we'll reflect on this God who, as we've seen, is eternal and infinite self-existent and self-sustaining, immutable, holy, transcendent, glorious, singular, triune, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, sovereign, and infinitely wise. We'll see this morning that he is also perfectly just. Let me start off by asking you, what is justice? What comes to mind when you think about Justice, maybe a definition, a synonym, a picture. What, what is justice? Getting what you deserve. Getting what you deserve, okay. Fighting for the oppressed, good. Anything else? Any synonyms, like words? Okay, the right thing. It's good. A couple of simple definitions. Fairness, uh, equity, which is kind of, again, that idea of equity also brings along with it that concept of fairness the upholding of law against a wrongdoer, or the reward or penalty as deserved. Now, a question I just want you to think about just for a moment quietly, 
and it's maybe not as easy as it, as it first sounds, do you want God to be perfectly just? And I'm not asking you to respond to that. Just ponder that for a second. Do you want God to be perfectly just? The topic of God's justice and, and resulting judgment um, is one that many people, including many Christians, recoil from, pull back from. Uh, it's not something that we like to think about a lot, talk about a lot, sometimes preach about a lot. Uh, and and some, for some, they have just a hard time imagining that a God of perfect love would also be a God that would be, maybe in our minds, so harsh as to be one who would also judge. Others seem to revel in the concept. <laughs> they, they, they seem to um, just enjoy imagining God executing justice against those evil people out there. And I believe each one of those responses, at some level at least, reflect kind of a warped view and warped understanding of God's justice. Uh, it's not something that we should be afraid to ponder, to think about, or to avoid. But it's also not something to revel in or to take lightly, but something to be handled soberly. And if we think of it, at least in the, the ending ramifications of God's justice for those who don't know Christ, it should be something that is thought of tearfully and not with celebration. But is it right? Is it good? Do we want God to be perfectly just? The Bible isn't shy about the topic. Um, the concept of God's justice is spoken of regularly in Scripture. And it's actually very closely tied to his righteousness. That God is a God that is perfectly right. Always. In his character and in his way, in his will, in his dictates. Everything about him is right. Uh, Deuteronomy 32 verses 3 and 4. I will proclaim the name of the Lord, of Yahweh. Oh, praise the greatness of our God. He is the rock. His works are perfect, and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. We may ask ourselves, what kind of God would God be if he were not perfectly just? Is that a God that we could even trust in? Is that a God that we could trust would make all things right if he were not perfectly just? Abraham, we have the story of Abraham when God reveals that he will destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because of the deep wickedness that that city was partaking in. 
And Abraham asks a question of God because he's, he's concerned that some righteous people might perish with the wicked. And he asks this interesting question in that exchange with God. And he says, will not the judge of all the earth do what? Right. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? And we have that exchange afterwards. What if, what if there's, you know, what if there's 50 righteous people? Will you, no, I'd spare it for 50. Well, what about 45? What about 40? What about, he gets all the way down to 10, I think. And the Lord's like, no, I'll spare it for 10. But I think what we need to hear in Abraham's question, God already knew what he was doing. God knew who was there. God knew that there weren't even that many righteous people there. I don't believe Abraham was wondering whether God would do right. I believe he was pleading toward God's character, knowing that he could do nothing but what is right. No outside law compels God to be just. We, are, we have laws that compel us, at least when others are watching, to try and do the right thing. No outside law compels him. Uh, like all his other attributes, it's intrinsically who he is. Tozer says that God is his own self-existent principle of moral equity. And when he sentences evil men or rewards the righteous, he simply acts like himself from within, uninfluenced by anything that is not himself. Now, this God of all rightness is also, as we've looked at through these many weeks, the creator of all that is and the king that rules sovereign, sovereign over all that is, over all his creation. Just want to read these next couple of verses in Deuteronomy 32. They have acted corruptly toward him, starting at verse 5, just 5 and 6. To their shame they are no longer his children, but a warped and crooked generation. Is this the way you repay the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is he not your father, your creator, who made you and formed you? Now certainly that could be speaking to Israel, the, the father and creator of Israel. But in a broader sense, we say God is, is the father in the broad sense of all creation. And his rightness then naturally becomes the standard for the whole, and create, the whole created order. And anything that steps out of line with that, perfect, with that perfection is a violation against it. And injustice and defiance toward it, that's what evil actually is. And toward such insolence, justice and judgment rightly belong to God. He is a God, as Habakkuk 1.13 tells us, cannot tolerate wrong. Nahum 1.3 says, The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. <clears throat> you excited about this yet? <laughs> We need to remember when we think of the Lord's justice, 
that the Lord's retribution is not like ours most often is, kind of an outburst of, uncon- uh, of an uncontrolled temper tantrum or, or uh, a response from wounded pride. Even when we hear words like wrath in the scripture, the wrath of God, it's to be understood as God's proper and right response to injustice. To all that rebels against his perfection. He is the creator. He is the sovereign king. His rightness is the standard for all his creation. Anything that steps outside of that standard has violated, infringed upon it, rebelled against it. He is the rightful judge against those violations. God being God can do nothing other but bring justice to injustice. That is who he is. R.T. France says, The wrath of God is not vindictive malice, but the inevitable reaction to the holy God in contact with sinful man. J.A. Packer says, God's wrath is a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. James Boyce wrote, Wrath is God's consistent and unyielding resistance to sin and evil. And we actually get glimpses of this. Like when you, when you look at Romans 8, I mean Romans chapter 1, I believe that it speaks to this. We get glimpses of God's wrath being revealed even now and God's judgment being revealed even now. And, and it seems that it's, it's this idea that it's being played out all around us in a world that's bound by sickness and death and decay in a world that feels the natural consequences of sin. So it's not that God has, we might say, directly brought this upon us, but we have brought it upon ourselves. And in his judgment, he allows us to reap what we sow to the point that we feel the pain of walking away from God. And that we would say, if we're honest, in a world that is so broken and so full of sickness and so full of decay and death and so full of addiction and so full of broken relationships and and mental illness, that we would say, this is hard and and this is, at one level, bad. But these are only the birth pains of what is to come. For God will one day bring all things under his right, perfect, and final judgment. What Romans 2, 5 describes as the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment is being revealed. Even Messiah which we understand as Jesus, Messiah, the prophesied one, the anointed one of God that would come to Israel. Even Messiah is prophesied to reign, to have a reign that permanently sets justice in place. Isaiah 9-7, right? We, 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 we quote this during Christmas. He will reign on, God's throne, uh, on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. So the idea of Messiah would be, would be a ruler, would be, would be a king. 
that would permanently establish God's justice. Some of the pictures of Jesus' second coming are actually very sobering of his return to earth. Revelation 19, 15, and 16. Uh, well, I'm, first, I want to say Hebrews 9, 28 says that on his second coming, he will bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. But in Revelation 19, 15, and 16, it tells us also to expect upon his, his return that he will rule the nations with an iron scepter. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But again, how could Messiah do any less? How could, how could Messiah have absolute rule apart from absolute justice? God is utterly and completely just. So what of us? Don't we being created in the image of God reflect a desire for justice? Certainly we do at, at, at many levels. You see it even with little children, even though at times it's applied wrongly, when they say, that's not what? Fair. That's not fair. Aren't, aren't they saying that's unjust? We all know in our hearts that there's a need for justice. It, it, story after story that we read, or movie after movie that we watch, there, it, it, there's, a, there's a, a villain in the story, and, and you, the villain has done some heinous crime, and it seems that he or she is getting away with it. And during that, we, we kind of seethe with this, with this feeling of dismay at the lack of justice, and then we are quite satisfied in the end. It, when the culprit gets his due. Allow me to ask this. How do you feel when you think of children, real young girls, real young boys, and well beyond, that get abducted and caught up as commodities to be used around the world in the sex trade. It's a reality of our world. Thousands upon thousands caught up against their will as slaves, as commodities, as products to be used and abused. Isn't there a rightful indignation when you think of such things? Isn't there something that stirs in your soul? A call for justice? Isn't it sickening to think that someone may, quote-unquote, get away with such crimes? Everyone, at some level, understands the need for justice.
We ask with the psalmist when we ponder such atrocities, how long will the wicked, O, long, o Lord, how long will the wicked be, jub be jubilant? Psalmist is asking, how long will they get away with it? How long will it go unchecked? How many children will be abused? How many people will be murdered? How long, O oh Lord, will, will injustice prevail? The problem is, is that we really don't want perfect justice. We understand that there's a need for justice but we don't want perfect justice. I don't know how many times I've been uh, riding down the highway and someone flies by me. And what do I think? Where is a cop when you need him? But of course, if I look down and I'm in a 65, I'm doing what? My very conservative 74. You know, it's where you pin it, right, on the cruise control, 74. You don't want to go more than 10 over. Think, how much money would I owe if every time I broke the speed limit, how much money would you owe? If every, it's breaking the law, right? Can we all nod our heads? Break, to, to break the speed limit is breaking the law? <laughs> yes. <laughs> right? It's breaking the law of the land. How much money would you owe if every time you broke the speed limit, you were caught? Do you have, yeah, do you have that much money? I mean, no. I mean, we would be, we'd probably all be in jail. Right. We, we really don't want absolute equity. We want, we want justice on a grading curve. That's really what we desire. Uh, a, a curve that preferably always allows our failures and our justice to kind of be bumped up as minor infractions. And that there are many more heinous infractions below us. This is true in prisons. Uh, it's been said that, that a pedophile is the worst of the worst in a prison. That you can have gangbangers, you can have murderers, but if, if they can exact justice on a pedophile, they'll feel right to do that. A murderer may think, well, I've done some bad things. I've killed a few guys, but this guy. But we all do that. It's, it's not that extreme of the logic, right, that you might find in a prison, but we all do that. I've done some bad stuff, but look at the grading curve always begins with us not being too bad and many others who are far worse. But God doesn't judge on a grading curve. As scripture says repeatedly, God will give each person according to what he has done. So what, we, what have we done in view of God's perfect righteousness? 
and a God that measures not only our actions, but our words, our thoughts, our motivations. Can you imagine the weight of every wrong action in your life? Add on to that every idle word. Add on to that every perverse thought. Add on to that every selfish motivation. I know some of you, by the end of any given day, feel the guilt and the weight of failure, of not measuring up. Is it any wonder that Romans 3.10 says, there is no one righteous, not even one? That Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The concept of sin is to miss the mark, and we've all missed it. I've, I've used an illustration like this before. If we, were, if we were standing on the shoreline of the Atlantic Ocean, right, and there's a bunch of us lined up, and we're throwing rocks at, trying to throw rocks at England, you know, if Ben Roethlisberger, Carson Wentz, football players, okay, if you, they're quarterbacks, if they're standing next to me, they are going to wing it inevitably much farther than I do. But how close they get into England? We're all going to miss the mark. Woefully, dreadfully. James Boyce says, The wrath of God is not ignoble. Rather, it is too noble, too just, too perfect. It is that, this that bothers us. With him we deal not with the imperfections of human justice, but with the perfections of divine justice. And it's only when we accept that we are weighed against God's standard, that we are weighed against the standard of 100% purity and moral perfection, and that all sin is an abhorrent rebellion against a righteous God. That anything and everything short of his perfection is immoral, unholy, and unjust. That Jesus would say, listen, you don't really even have to sleep with her. Just look upon her lustfully and adultery is there. That Jesus would say, hey, listen, you really don't even have to go all full out and kill him. Just hate him. Just get so angry. Just say, I can't stand. There's murder in your heart. It's when we realize that it's that measuring rod that we begin to realize that perfect justice Applied to me would bring rightful judgment. It's only upon the realization of this that I seek forgiveness. God's love and God's 
justice work hand in hand. It's because of his justice that we can realize his great love. It's it's in this place that I can move from this self-deception, this lie that I'm good enough to appease God and move myself like those we see in the Gospels who throw themselves at the feet of Christ. Like we see as Daniel brought up here this morning, the, the, the man on the cross that just says humbly, Lord, I'm getting what I deserve. Would you just remember me? It's here that we echo Paul's words. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? But it's also in that place that you're ready to hear the answer. Thanks be to God. Through Christ Jesus, our Lord. For God so loved the world. What a marvel. That he gave his one and only son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So as we begin to turn our minds and our hearts to the communion table, and we see symbols that point to the cross of Calvary and Jesus on that cross, broken bread that pictures his broken body, juice that pictures his spilled blood. What I'd encourage you to realize is that it's at the cross that we see the justice that is demanded by our injustice received by a perfectly just and righteous Jesus. Amen? James Boyce says, Jesus himself received the full judicial outpouring of God's wrath against sin. Those who believe now come to experience not wrath, though they richly deserve it, but grace abounding. At the cross, we see justice perfectly applied and satisfied. And mercy and grace made available. At the cross, my judgment becomes Christ. And his righteousness, his perfect rightness becomes mine. That's what justification means. That you are made just. Made right through faith in Jesus because his rightness becomes your rightness and your garbage, all the weight of your sin was applied to him and died that there 2,000 years ago. And that justice never stops working for us who believe. 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. 
Romans 8.33 says, Who will bring a charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. So he asked boldly, Who will charge someone who is in Christ? Who will bring a charge against them? Who will say they're not worthy? Who will say they should be condemned? It is God who justifies. J.A. Packer says, Between us and the thunderclouds of divine wrath stands the cross of the Lord Jesus. If we are Christ through faith, we are justified through the cross, and the wrath will never touch us, neither here or hereafter. Praise God. And Jesus made it very clear about himself that he came first to save, not to condemn. But scripture is also very clear that he will return as judge of all the earth. So you and I have a choice, judgment or salvation. And all will receive what we have freely chosen. There's no neutrality. To ignore Jesus is not being neutral. It's to make a choice. It's to, as 1 Peter 2.8 describes, disobey the message. Again, Boyce says, Grace does not eliminate wrath. Wrath is still stored up for the unrepentant. But grace does eliminate the necessity for everyone to experience it. And again, let me make it abundantly clear for those of you who are in Christ Jesus or think about entering into faith in Christ Jesus. In Christ, there is no fear of God's condemnation. There is no fear of his judgment and wrath. Romans 8.1 says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That doesn't mean he doesn't discipline those he loves. That's a teaching for another day. But the punishment has been fully received in Christ. But apart from Christ, there's no escaping it. Jesus said himself right after that famous John 3.16, he says in 17 and 18, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. So if you have or you will receive Jesus by faith, that he is who he says he is, the perfect Son of God, that his death was chosen by him, to perfectly atone for sin, and that three days later he rose victorious over the grave. If you can say, that Jesus is my master, my Lord, that Jesus is my Savior, we welcome you to partake in communion. And as you do it this morning, I ask that you remember, as 1 Thessalonians 1.10 says, that Jesus rescues us from the coming wrath, But not only are we rescued from wrath, we're rescued unto reconciliation with God. 
Romans 5, 6 through 11. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, since we have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were, what, we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, with whom we now have received reconciliation. I'm going to pass out the elements. Before I do, just a, the a thought of the words of the modern hymn, In Christ Alone. In Christ alone who took on flesh, fullness of God and helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones he came to save, Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live.